This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you to this Tuesday in May as we open God's Word together. If you're a first-time listener to the Bible Line, uh, for the next hour, we entertain people's questions. Maybe there's an issue that as you've been studying God's Word, you'd like clarification as maybe as to what it means or how to apply it in the day that we live in. And if we can help, all you need to do is, again, you can call us locally at 843 525 1859. 525-1859 is the uh, 843 exchange, or you can call us toll-free at 877. The call letters WAGP 980. Many people email us here directly into the studio, and we're happy to take your emailed questions. They'll pop up on the screen in front of us, um, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And when you call, you can go on the air live. We do give preference to live callers, though it seems like these days the majority just are happy to dictate their question, and we're happy to receive them that way as well. So, Rick, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll get started this morning, and let's go. All right, Pastor, we do have a number of questions. Uh, Shirley would like to know where she can get information on proof that the Bible is the infallible Word of God for her daughter who believes some of it. Uh, do you have a booklet on this? And if so, how can she get it? She tried the website, but was unable to find anything. Yes, I do. I, I wrote a, a booklet um, that is actually contained in a, a series, though I mended it for my personal use, but a series that uh, Ken Ham did on Christian apologetics. And I think it's called The Uniqueness of the Bible there. But um, I also uh, created a little booklet that is available on Amazon. I make zero money, so I'm not interested in selling books or making money off of books. Uh, I make nothing from it, but it is available on Amazon. I think it's $4.50, very minimal price. Uh, that's Amazon's cost, so they're the only ones that make it. And uh, it's called How to Prove the Bible is True. And I walk through various infallible proofs, five to be specific, as to why the Bible is a unique book and why it is that we can trust the Bible. So uh, that's a good place to start. And, and by the way, um, we offer a course at Community Bible Church. It's called Back to Basics, and it's an important course. Uh, we also label it the Discovery Class. Online, it's called Back to Basics. Uh, on the church, it's called uh, the Discovery Class, and it's a 45-week course that walks you through the basics of the Christian faith. And sadly, sometimes people come to know Christ as their Savior, but they're never discipled. Uh, and so this kind of walks you through. And so in that course, I demonstrate how we can know the Bible is the only book God ever wrote, as well as the booklet on Amazon. 
Um, and I go through, first of all, the Bible's personal claims, that it claims to be the Word of God. Now, unfortunately, that's where a lot of Christians start and end. They say, well, the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God, and so it's inspired. Well, I could write a book and make the same claim, and that doesn't necessarily make it true, so that can be a circular argument. But if the Bible didn't claim to be inspired, we would have a real problem. Uh, But it does. It claims not to be partially inspired, but Jesus' view of inspiration as I walk through that booklet is complete. It's what we would call verbal plenary inspiration. Look, if the, spot, if the Bible's inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. Oh, yeah, that verse is true. God is love. This verse, God is a consuming fire. Mm-mm, I don't like that one. And that's really where uh, denominations are today, whether or not they believe in verbal plenary inspiration Verba is from the Latin word word, a plenary, full. So we're talking about a, a full word-for-word word inspiration. And Jesus, of course, believed in the inspiration of the Bible down to the smallest jot and tittle. And so he used uh, two words, one for the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is the word yod. In uh, a yod, if... Um, you were to see it, would look much like the English apostrophe. It's the smallest stroke of this pen, and the um, smallest letter. And then he uh, said the Bible was inspired in Matthew 5 down to the smallest stroke of the pen. And he uses a word that would distinguish uh, two Hebrew letters, the resh and the dalish, and it would be a little tail. It would be similar to uh, the English uh, printed uh, letter O, capital L, letter O, and the capital letter Q. The difference between those two letters is a small little mark. And Jesus said that's how inspired the Bible is, right down to the smallest mark. So um, then in that booklet, I go through the proven accuracies of the Bible. Historically, everything it has ever said has never been proven wrong. Now, there have been things said in it that people were not able to confirm, and so they said, therefore, it was wrong. For instance, Pontius Pilate, um, people, the critics of the Bible, until the 1960s said, he's a mythological person. The Bible made him up. There was no such person in human history. And then in a place called Capernaum by the sea, a place that uh, Herod the Great had built as kind of a retreat center. It was the place where when the Apostle Paul was arrested and he stood before Felix and Festus, that's where he was imprisoned. And uh, they found in 1961 a piece of stone reminding us that there was a real historical person by the name of Pontius Pilate. And so in doing the excavations, for the first time ever, we had a written archaeological record of this particular governor of Judea. So the Bible uh, is always confirmed by biblical archaeology, outside writings, and so forth. Uh, Sir William Ramsey, who is a Nobel Prize recipient and professor of humanities at Aberdeen University in Scotland, uh, said in the 20th century that without a doubt, it was the single best historical piece of Uh, ancient antiquity of writings that man has ever had a copy of. Uh, So again, there's historical evidence that confirms it. There's the archaeological evidence that affirms the truth of the Bible, that it's inspired, and those have never been denied. But then there's also the supernatural construction of the Bible. 
Uh, it, it is really a unique book. I mean, when you think about it, it's written by a wide diversity of authors, probably about 40 as best we can tell, over a period of about 1,600 years. Uh, they lived in many different locations, at least on three continents, uh, under a wide variety of conditions and professions. I mean, their makeup is really interesting. You think about it, Moses is in the desert, Solomon's in a palace, Paul's in a prison when he writes some of his books, John is in exile when he writes the Revelation. They use three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, um, from a wide variety of professions, Uh, Moses, a political leader and a prophet, Joshua, a military leader, David, a shepherd, a king, a prophet, Nehemiah, a cupbearer, about Solomon, he's a king. You know, Amos, he's a herdsman. Daniel, he's a prime minister and prophet. Matthew, a tax collector. Luke, you know, who gave us a lot of the New Testament, a medical doctor. Um, Peter, a fisherman. All these different people from these wide varieties of lifestyles called of God to give us the Bible. And what's so amazing is that while most of these human authors never even met each other, there's a unified content from Genesis to Revelation without a single contradiction. There's a unity that runs from Genesis to Revelation that can only be explained by one divine author behind each human author. These people who never met each other, who lived in different parts of the world at different centuries, and yet they write with a unity because God was behind it all. Uh, Within the Scripture, Uh, The prophetic nature of the Bible proves its divine origin. There's over, for instance, 300 prophecies written just for the first coming of the Messiah, and every single one was literally actually fulfilled, not spiritually, but literally. When the Bible said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he meant just that. Uh, When the Bible says that they would gamble over his garments, he meant just that. Uh, When the Bible said he would be born of a virgin, he meant just that. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Um, You know, and it's not by accident. You know, he's going to minister in Galilee. He's going to have a triumphal entry. The prophet Zechariah speaks of it. Uh, The psalmist speaks of how one of his disciples will betray him. Another prophet says for 30 pieces of silver and that he'll be falsely accused, that he'll be silent before his, you know, those who accuse him, and on and on. Not a single bone would be broken. We just celebrated Passover and how um, God specified that when they ate the Passover lamb, they could not break any of the bones of the lamb. So they carefully took the meat apart without breaking the bones, cracking them. Why? Because, again, it was a, a picture that the disciples would flee. How, I mean, how can they write all these specific prophecies. There was a guy by the name of Nostradamus who uh, lived hundreds of years ago, and some people think that he was a prophet of sorts, and he wrote the kind of prophecies that could apply just about anything. In fact, one of of the prophecies in his book is that the world would end by 1998. Well, I guess it's still here. So, you know, he was wrong. So there's no other religious book in the world that has verifiable, fulfilled prophecy except the Scripture itself. And then I, in my little booklet that, again, is on Amazon, I take it one step further beyond the, you know, internal proofs that the Bible is the only book God wrote. Then the critics would say, well, the Bible hasn't been preserved, that what we have today is not representative of what God originally wrote. 
and I compare it to other you know documents of antiquity that there's no comparison uh, and there is incredible proof to show that the Bible can be uh, trusted. Uh, for instance, if you take the writings of the church fathers, which I cover in my course on bibliology, you can construct every single verse in the New Testament with the exception of four verses just from their quotations of the Holy Scriptures. So it's absolutely amazing. And, and, and then, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were uncovered in 19... 19- 47, if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, and we're supposed to go to Israel again in May of uh, 2021, we're actually um, have the reservations and everything for a group to go. Now, whether or not that's going to be possible is all contingent on this virus. Uh, But with that said, uh, one of the places we go is the Dead Sea. And we go and we look at some of those caves from the observation point where these scrolls were found in 1947 by a shepherd boy who is just out there in the dry, arid climate that it is, which is an ideal climate for these scrolls to be preserved. And and these men known as the Essenes, they took the scrolls and they put them in pots and they hid them in these caves because they so valued the Word of God. And, and so we found, for instance, a complete copy of the book of Isaiah that you can date at least 100 years before Christ, could be 200 years before Christ, but most conservatively, 100 years before Christ. Prior to that, the oldest copy we had of the book of Isaiah was 900 years after Christ. And when you compare the one that was written in 900 AD and the one that was written, say, 100 BC, there was a difference of 17 letters. And the differences were minor. They were stylistic uh, insertions of, say, a conjunction or the way the spelling of a word changed. Like in Old English, we spelt the word Savior, S-A-V-I-O-U-R. Today, we typically, unless you're British, spell it S-A-V-I-O-R. So even the 17 minor differences uh, changed absolutely nothing. And what did that affirm for us? Just like when you can, again, reproduce the entire New Testament with the exception of four verses from the Church Fathers, uh, what it did for us in terms of the Old Testament is it proved its accuracy of transmission. I mean, there's no other book like it. God has preserved his word, and when the Scripture says, thus saith the Lord, it means that. Uh, An anonymous poet, it's a great little poem, the Holy Bible must have been inspired of God and not of men. I could not, if I would believe, that good men wrote it to deceive. A bad man could not, if they would, and surely would not, if they could, proceed to write a book so good. And certainly no crazy man could e'er conceive its wondrous plan and pray what other kinds of men then do these three groups comprehend. Hence it must be that God inspired the word which souls of prophets fired. And so uh, it's, it's an amazing book. Great question. Go to Amazon or you can call Search the Scriptures. The toll-free number is 877-STS for Search the Scriptures, 7478. And you can uh, order it there and they'll be happy to get you a copy. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Jason wrote, I had a discussion with my uncle about the attendance of believers at a wedding in the justice of the peace. Should we attend or not? I personally don't see an issue with it because it's a creation ordinance. 
Uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, regardless if you are a Christian or not. My uncle says that a marriage is not a marriage without Christ, so therefore he would not attend. He says it's wrong. I say going or not going is a liberty decision, but seek the Lord and make a decision by faith. What are your thoughts? Well, it is important that we define marriage because it is up for grabs, it seems, in a lot of people's minds today. God defines marriage as one man and one woman, period. Uh, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. So when people say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about gay marriage, yes, he did. When he quoted Genesis, he said everything about gay marriage. When they say he didn't say anything about homosexuality, Yes, he did when he described his second coming, and he said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Lot, and he spoke of the judgment that was accompanied with it and, and what happened. So um, uh, so Jesus very, very pointedly addressed what a marriage is, and it's not what people say it is today. Marriage is one man, one woman, and it's not purely a Christian institution, So it's an institution that God set up for all of humanity, not just for Christians. Why? Because God recognizes that there's a semblance of order. uh, There is a degree of love that's expressed in a family unit that cannot be expressed anywhere else or in any other way except through the family. And so God's word is, is clear in how we are to perceive of this. So with that said, I would simply ask the question, why is someone going to a justice of the peace? Now, if they're not born again, okay, I get it. Um, But most people, at least Christian people, at least born again people, when they get married, they want to call not just a justice of the peace, but a pastor, and they uh, want to give God honor because not only is marriage an institution for the society at large, but it is also an institution uh, for God's people in that it pictures the relationship that Christ has with the church. In the Old Testament, God describes Israel as his bride. And under the New Covenant, God affirms Israel, uh, that the church is his bride, the bride of Christ, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile. So God uses the imagery even of marriage for his own relationship with Israel in the Old Testament and with the church made up of Jew and Gentile in the New Testament era in which we live. Um, But is it a marriage? Yes, it is. Um, Because what your father-in-law is basically saying is all of the marriages, probably 90% of them in Western Europe that are no longer done in churches are not marriages, but they are. So what makes a marriage a marriage? It's not just two people living together, but it's two people who make a public declaration that they are going to live as husband and wife. And throughout Western Europe, um, many people, they don't use what they call justice of the peace, but it would parallel that. And they go into an office and they sign a document and they live as husband and wife. But that's a legal declaration and a public profession that they're making whether it's before a justice of peace or before a man of God. But why not if two people are born again? Why would you not want to have a pastor do it? I certainly would want to. If I were a born-again Christian, and I am, I wouldn't want it any other way because it's an opportunity for witness and testimony and to give God glory for the uh, institution that he developed, not to mention, too, 
um, you know, marriages like, you know, the, I always tell uh, people, young high school students, when they come in for their annual meeting with the pastor before they graduated seniors, that there's three big decisions in life, master, mate, and mission. Those are the three big decisions of life. Who will be your master? Christ must be if you want to spend an eternity with God in heaven. Uh, who will be your mate? That's the single biggest, second most important decision of life. Who are you going to marry? And you want to make sure that you are on the same page. So to help couples do that, we have six minimum one-hour appointments of premarital counseling that's done over the course of six months. And there's about 15 to 20 hours of homework that they have to do. Why? Because we are not simply in the marrying business. We are in the business of building Christian homes. And we want people to be successful when they get married. And we want them to think through in advance. I mean, the time to uh, ask, uh, oh, I didn't know you didn't want children. I mean, you, you, you answer questions like that in advance. Oh, I, I didn't know you wanted to pursue a career when our babies came. I thought you were going to stay at home and raise our kids and not put them in a daycare center. Those are questions you want to ask and answer um, beforehand. You want to be on the same page in terms of your finances and in terms of how the family is structured and who the head of the home is. Look, if you have no head, it's dead. If you have two heads, you have a monster. Someone has to lead, and God has given that role to the man. And yet we live in a day where egalitarian theology that says men and women are not only equal in their status before God, but in the roles that they can play, that there is no head, that the woman can be as much ahead of the home and the leader in the home as the man is. Look, where does a child learn to respect the um, teacher in school or the police officer or government authorities or ecclesiastical authorities? He is supposed to learn in the smallest microcosm of life where the dad is the head of the home, the leader. Now, he's not a dictator, but he's a leader. And someone has to lead. And someone needs to respect that authority and submit to that authority. And without it, Uh, you have a potential disaster. So, um, you know, again, your uncle respectfully is is wrong, but I appreciate his spirit and that he's trying to affirm Christian marriage. And certainly if these people are Christians, I know a couple that uh, came to me once and they wanted to renew their vows. I was privileged to introduce them to Christ and And they said, well, uh, Pastor Carl, we want to renew our vows. And I said, well, why do you want to renew your vows? Well, we didn't feel like we really got married the first time. What do you mean? Well, we went down to Beaufort County, and there was a lady on the phone. I won't mention her name. She may still work there. And she's on the phone, and they brought in the marriage license, and she looked at it. Well, she said, hold on just a second. She signed it, and then she put her stamp on it, and she handed it. Congratulations. She went right back to her phone call. Now, that was a legal transaction that took place. And when they went to that woman who was a justice of the peace, they were making a public proclamation before God and before men and before the law and before public record that they were going to live together as husband and wife. But, you know, now that they had come to Christ, they really wanted to give a different kind of affirmation. And so I I, I did kind of a ceremony for them and and I, and I respect that. But, so I respect what your uncle is saying, 
But if he takes it logically and thinks it through, then he's going to basically cancel out millions of marriages that have been taking place in Western Europe without any kind of ecclesiastical authority for the last 25 or 30 years in pagan Europe, because it is pagan. You think America is pagan. Spend some time in Western Europe and you'll see what real paganism is. All right, let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Jaden writes, my family has some questions about Elevation Church. We are strongly grounded Christians who understand the gospel and have professed our faith. Is it okay to watch their live streams? They don't mention the complete plan of salvation every service. His wife preaches sometimes as well. Does he preach a prosperity gospel? Is their worship music okay to listen to? I think the pastor's name is Stephen Furtick. It is, um, and I've mentioned him a few times from the pulpit as a good example of bad theology. And uh, he pastors the church, Elevation Church. He actually went from a, went to a school in South Carolina called North Greenville State, which uh, is uh, one of the few Southern Baptist schools that did not go liberal. Um, they've had some unfortunate events in the last few years, but they're you know back on track with a new president and everything else. Then he went to a very conservative seminary called Southern Seminary. Al Mohler has been the president there. Al Mohler took it over when... Roy Honeycutt was the president. It was a total disaster that he walked into. Honeycutt was just a full-fledged liberal who had, you know, men working under his leadership who believed in the murder of innocent babies. They were writing uh, apologetic books on why abortion was okay. They'd take all the air out of the balloon. They denied the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. In fact, uh, Broadman at the time had produced a series of commentaries that were extremely liberal and less than faithful to the truth of God's Word. So when Dr. Moeller went in, he really had to clean house, and he ended up firing a lot of people, and um, and he did a great job. So Furtick even went to a conservative seminary. But look, uh, there are people who've been to conservative Bible-believing seminaries. When I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had finished my uh, THM, which was a four-year degree, and then I was in a three-year doctoral program, and I had called this uh, young guy because he was the only other guy from Dallas Seminary who'd ever been accepted into a doctoral program at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I asked him some questions and so forth, and he was just about done. He was working on his dissertation, and so he'd gone through the same four-year program that I went through at Dallas where, you know, intensive language training, a lot of theology, same three-year doctoral program. And uh, a week after I spoke with him, he was arrested. And it turned out that he was the rapist of Dallas, and he had raped nine women, and he will never get out of prison. So you can have people who on the outside talk Christian, walk Christian, use a lot of the same language, but be incredibly doctrinally weak, even though they went to some superb seminaries, as Furtick did. Look, he, he's not very doctrinally minded. If he were, he wouldn't call T.D. Jakes, who denies the doctrine of the Trinity, his mentor. Um, if you go online uh, on T.D. Jakes, it, it says there's one God, he's creator of all things, he's infinitely perfect, and he uses the wording that he eternally exists in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, that's not true. 
God does not exist in three manifestations. God is a trinity. He's three distinct persons who are co-equal, co-eternal. But when he uses the term three manifestations, he's showing his cards that he's a oneness Pentecostal. He denies the doctrine of the Trinity. And so he would say that God manifests himself sometimes as the Father. Sometimes the Father becomes the Son. Sometimes the Son manifests himself as the Spirit. But not that there's one God who exists in three co equal, co eternal persons. And T.D. Jakes is, you know, like Furtick, a prosperity theologian. And that alone, if he had his mind half put together from the scriptures, he would not associate with T.D. Jakes. Listen, God says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. God says there are certain people that we are to turn away from. Now, you talk about biblical separation today and people think you're some hyper-fundamentalist, who really doesn't love and care for people. Not at all. Uh, God calls us sometimes to separate from people who are engaged in theological error. In uh, 2 Thessalonians, I just read a verse from Romans chapter um, 15, uh, Romans 16, and now I'm reading a verse here from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and it says, um, uh, and again, it's, it's a very pointed statement in terms of, biblical separation, because um, we're not to um, just embrace anybody and everybody who comes down the pike. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. By the way, Paul affirms the doctrine of the Trinity in Second Thessalonians, and that's part of the teaching in this letter. And Paul said, if you don't ascribe to this teaching, you should put that person away. In the book of Titus, um, chapter 3, there the apostle Paul says, reject the factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. T.D. Jakes, like Stephen Furtick, are a factious man. Why? Because they're going against the clear teaching of Scripture. They're going against what God has said plainly, And these are not like what we would call secondary or tertiary issues. These are primary issues by which one paints himself either as a born-again Christian or as a false teacher. Now, let me just say right off, Stephen Furtick would not deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but he will allow into his pulpit, and he'll speak in T.D. Jake's pulpit, a man who does deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And God says we're not supposed to do that. Um, Jesus said, I have a few things against you. He's speaking to the church in Pergamum. I have a few things against you because there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who have kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, you allowed some of these false teachers into the church when you should have never allowed them into my church, and you need to repent of that. And that's exactly what Furtick is doing. He is allowing a false teacher into his church. You've raised a second issue. And by the way, biblical separation, we're not talking about, you know, um, a church believes that you should baptize only infants and someone else believes in post-conversion baptism. That's not an issue that um, 
is fundamental to someone's salvation because baptism is not a salvation issue. It's not a salvation issue at all. It's simply a sign and a symbol. And there are Presbyterian brothers who take a covenant approach and they think, well, the parents are making a covenant between you know, God and man. And it was Calvin and Luther basically rewriting infant baptism out of Roman Catholicism. And it was an interesting ploy. They were both wrong in this issue. But will we see those guys in heaven? Yes. They were wrong on their view of Israel. Will we see them in heaven? Yes. But, you know, I mean, both post-conversion and infant baptism can't be wrong. But it's not a test of fellowship. It's not a test of orthodoxy. Uh, Both people can't be right. But it doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven or not go to heaven. And so these are important issues. And Furtick is off on this because he's dealing with an issue that is essential This is not a non-negotiable issue. This is a primary issue. Someone was asking me the other day about Bethel music and would I use it? Absolutely not. Why? Because you've got people in there who are not only wacko on the signs, wonders movement in terms of what God says of some gifts that are unique to apostles, but they've got some people who are denying the deity of our Lord and Savior. Listen, Jesus said, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sin, period. You cannot deny the deity of Christ. So why would I want to give endorsement to that movement? And so if I have to separate from them by not supporting their music, then I'm going to obey God and do what he says. Furtick, in addition, he does uh, have women pastors in his pulpit. Um, Christine Kane has preached there on many a Sunday mornings. I think she doesn't call herself a pastor, but a pastix. You know, I call them pastorettes. Um, you know, they come up with these different titles, but the office of elder, deacon, pastor, bishop refers to the same office in the New Testament used interchangeably, not of different offices, but of the same offices. And so within the phraseology of Paul describing an elder, he calls him an elder and he calls him a bishop in the same breath because it's the same office. But in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, one, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. So a woman, for a woman to step into the pulpit on Sunday morning to open the scriptures and to teach doctrine is in blatant violation of what God has called a woman to do. And when Paul gives the qualifications for an elder, among the qualifications, he says that this male, because he uses male pronouns, although he must be this, he must be that, he must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, literally. Now, a woman can't fill that position. And when you have women being pastors, you have the church being feminized. Look, study the history of liberalism in the Protestant church in America, and one of the first steps, one of the first steps they took was a reversal of roles in terms of what God had dictated between men and women. In addition, Furtick doubts the Bible you can go online and he says, look, if you're reading the Bible and you don't have doubts about it, you're not reading it very carefully. And there's a lot of things I read in the Bible and I doubt about it. And then one of his associates on one Sunday morning, and this was a big shemeal a few years ago, said, you know, he invited people to pray the sinner's prayer and to take God at his word and, and that you must come in faith and you cannot doubt that. And then that pastor's rebuked by Furtick who uh, said, look, you can't tell people they can't doubt. Look, the essence of salvation is that you come believing, that you are affirming 
that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is sufficient to save you. And if you don't come in faith, which is necessary uh, to be born again, then you're not going to be born again. And then add to that, Furtick does not have a biblical form of church government. He doesn't have uh, an elder board, so to speak, or deacons that work with him that hold him accountable. His board is a corporate board, and who's it made up of? Mega church pastors like T.D. Jakes. And so there's not any real accountability. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation over abuse of funds because he lives in a 16,000-foot mansion and everything else. I'm not going to go there. But, look, just start with the fact that, number one, he's not practicing biblical separation. I remember watching him on the Internet a year ago handing T.D. Jakes a check for $35,000. You don't do that with someone who doesn't have the gospel. Number two, he has reversed what God has plainly said about the role of men and women in the church. Third, he doubts the path, the, 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 he says that you can doubt the Bible and still be a good Christian. If you don't doubt the Bible, then you're at, what he's playing to the audience out there, and it's based on emotionalism. I mean, the guy is entertaining to watch. He's up there dancing and, you know, and um, getting into this cadence of sorts where it's almost mesmerizing, but he's not teaching faithfully the Word of God. And so he's got a lot to account for. I'm not going to say he's a Christian or not a Christian, but here's a general principle. When you're born again and regenerated by the Spirit, when you hear truth, you know truth. And so if a person like T.D. Jakes can be confronted by a number of leading evangelical pastors and say, look, T.D., you're going against 2,000 years of church history. The, the doctrine of the Trinity was not made up at the Council of Nicaea. This goes back to the birth of the church. It goes back to the book of Genesis chapter 1. You're going against 6,000 years of, of history. And so how can you, you know, um, deny this doctrine? If you are regenerate and you hear truth, you'll know truth. And if you can't know that truth and embrace that truth that no one has debated on in thousands of years, it's typically a sign that you've never been born again. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We Well, we had a live caller, but they have gone ahead and hung up. So let's go to our next uh, question that was uh, written to us. Um, Selma would like to know, have you published any books that I can use as a resource for my Bible study? Well, I, I mentioned one earlier from the first uh, email that came in, and it's called How to Prove the Bible is True. And that would be, I think, just a helpful resource. It's more of a booklet than it is a book. Uh, I also wrote about uh, the state of the unevangelized. What about those who've never heard? Uh, so that's also available on Amazon. Uh, Ken Ham did a series of books on Christian apologetics, and one is called World Religions and Cults. And it's excellent in terms of trying to uh, understand what the differences are between the world religions and all these various cults that come down the pike and are, are widespread here in the United States. And I was asked to do the chapter on Zoroasterism. And so, uh, in fact, if you understand Zoroasterism, in many ways you understand Hinduism because there's great parallels and one was birthed from the other. Um, in one of his books, How Do We Know the Bible is True?, 
uh, that's in two volumes. I did a couple of chapters. One is on the uniqueness of the Bible, and the other is on the importance of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so those are some uh, things that you can get. I, I've written, basically, I have about 20 books completed. <laughs> that's surprising to a lot of people. I've never sought to publish them. I've written entire commentaries on about 20 books of the Bible. And I think maybe someday I might try to punish, publish them uh, I'm not a real big fan of Christian um, publishers today because so many are so compromised. Uh, they're in it for the money. Lifeway Books is a total failure, a total failure. And now that Beth Moore has come out embracing a woman who embraces gay marriage and she lauds her as a wonderful Christian, not to mention her twisted view on the role of women in the church, why Lifeway will not pull her, it's because they have no integrity. Uh, because she's the cash cow that has made a lot of executives that work for that organization uh, well-off men. Um, and so to me, there's just gross compromise in so many of these Christian publishers that you could once trust. You used to be able to trust the InterVarsity Press. I can't trust them as far as I can spit. I mean, it's a shame where they have gone and their view on so many different issues. Moody Press used to say, well, we're a press you can trust. You can't trust Moody Bible Institute anymore. I can no longer endorse them. Uh, They are compromised. You know, you can go on the staff of Moody Bible Institute and drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. Uh, That's their view. And I think God has whipped them and disciplined them for it. They used to have two, I think, 13... Uh, floor, towers filled with students. They had to close one, and they're struggling um, because I think they have left their roots. And so we're, we're living in a day of a lot of compromise, a lot of wishy-washiness, and, and there's really nothing new under the sun. I don't know that I can contribute anything uh, new in terms of commentaries that have been written that are not already well done and excellent and superb, but I don't know if the Lord allows me to preach till I'm 83 and to live till 90 if the rapture doesn't take place. That's how I plan to spend my last seven years of life. All right, All let's, right. let's go to the next one. Good deal. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a next uh, listener would like to know if a couple is able to have children but they decide not to, uh, to pursue careers or live life without any kids, would God call that wrong? I know children are a blessing from the Lord, but does God want Christians to have children? Is that a biblical commandment? Well, is a general truth? Absolutely. Yes, that's what he uh, designed the body for the way he did. And he gave the command when um, Moses came off the ark and he says, is for you be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And he couldn't have said it any plainer. And he states it in different ways all the way through Scripture. And so, no, children are to be viewed as a blessing. And it's a privilege to be able to raise them. Now, there are qualifications I would make on that answer. There are women that have certain health issues that are going on that it's dangerous for them. Maybe they have a very weakened heart and and uh, the they're convinced that uh, from good medical counsel that if they get pregnant that they will not live to uh, see the baby through because of a heart problem and that 
They have such a sensitive and weak heart that it's not possible for them to have children. So there are issues like that that I don't dismiss, and each couple has to seek God on that. But it's a general truth. No, we're, we're, we're to have children. That's what God says. And we live in a day where, again, because so many other areas are compromised, I'm supposed to do a home education conference on June 4th, and, and they're putting that out to 350 homeschool associations across the country who are going to live stream with us. And they, they say, they told me last week we might have as many as 10,000 people viewing. I don't know. But I told the head of that organization who monitors these 350 homeschool associations because he's trying to get, you know, just pastors to take a stance for home education. He said that's the big problem is most pastors won't take a position on it. I said, well, it's not just the issue of home education. There's issues behind that. I said there's issues like the role of a mom in the home. If a pastor is afraid to address what God says about working mothers— then, you know, you can't have someone to stay home and home educate if they make that choice. It's impossible. And so there are other fundamental issues that are driving that. And sometimes the pastor's own lifestyle or sometimes things that the church does that communicates the exact opposite of what God says by their so-called daycare learning, educational centers, whatever brand or name they want to put on it. So there is a whole lot behind such issues. But so I say that to say that a lot of women today, uh, they, they, they limit their family size because they're career women or they don't have children because they want to pursue a career because the culture has taught them that that is more significant than having a baby and raising that child. And, you know, the, the only people who seem to have really caught this are the Muslims, and they're having, you know, six and seven and eight children. And when you look at some of the demographics of some of these Muslim countries, it, it's astonishing when you see, like, how many people in the country, the percentage of the population that's under the age of 30. It's like, wow, what is going to happen in 10 or 15 years should Jesus tarry? Uh, there's going to be a Muslim takeover. And that's what's happening in a lot of the Western European, European countries. Why do they need the Muslims? Well, because the population is dying off so fast, they're going to have empty neighborhoods. That's what, is, that's what Italy has been struggling with. They're such an old population, and they have chosen not to have children in the Roman Catholic capital of the world, of all places, that they're reaching points where they, they can't sell these homes because they don't have buyers unless we let the Muslims in who are going to bring in an entirely different worldview and potentially change the very nature of a nation. And they're seeing this, you know, with all the riots they've had in France and now the Germans who also, you know, have, you know, 0.9 children, whatever it is in terms of average, you know, that they don't have enough folks to keep the tax base up and, you know, to pay the retirement funds and their socialized medicine. So we need to let the Muslims in. And, and now it's starting to backfire because they have a very different worldview of how life should operate. So if anyone should be having Christian uh, children, it should be Christian people. Be fruitful and multiply. And they're a gift from God. And we don't really see them as a blessing anymore. You know, we don't say typically, well, God, you know, you've blessed me with too much money. Stop it, please. Or, God, you've blessed me with too good a health. Stop giving me such good health. 
but we don't really see children that way. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. How blessed is the man who's quivered? Oh, they're not a blessing. You know, one maybe, two possibly, but certainly not more than that. And if some guy has five children, I had a woman in this town when I was in a Walmart 25 years ago, and I had my five children with me. And uh, her name was well-known in the community at the time, and they used to hold some flower thing down on, uh, I think it was Cat Island once a year that was basically a, a, a flower event to raise money for Planned Parenthood to kill little babies. And she let me hear it when she found out all five of those children were mine. You know, that, that, that's a pagan view. That's not to be the, believe, the bo- view of a born-again Christian. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next uh, listener writes, I am confused concerning Matthew twenty two fourteen. What is the meaning of this verse? Is it a verse that speaks to the Calvinist doctrine of election? Well, let me uh, go there. Um, let me put it in the context first. Um, you know, when you think about the Scripture the four Gospels always typically think last chapter of the Gospels, the resurrection. The exception of that would be like the Gospel of John where the last two chapters of the resurrection, uh, the resurrection in 20, uh, post-resurrection appearances in 21, uh, then go back a chapter, so that would be like 19, and you can think of the crucifixion in 18, the arrest. And you can do that with all four Gospels, 28, resurrection, 27, crucifixion, and so forth. And so um, uh, when you look at um, the Gospel of Matthew, it's interesting to see, too, how much of the Gospels are actually even dedicated to the last week of Christ's life. And so he makes his triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem in chapter 21, and that was the day, by the way, what we call Palm Sunday, that the animals would be brought in for Passover. And so on Sunday, uh, those um, people who raised sheep, according to Josephus, it was done in Bethlehem, the place that the Lamb of God was born. And Bethlehem, of course, is only about five miles from Jerusalem, and they would take those Passover lambs and they would lead them uh, into the city of Jerusalem. And all week long, the priests would examine them to make sure there were no defects because God specified what kind of lamb you could use in the Passover sacrifice. And so the Lamb of God comes into Jerusalem on the same day, not by accident, and all week long he's being examined. Um, The Sanhedrin questions him. The Pharisees question him. The Herodians question him. All these different groups, both spiritual and religious and governmental, uh, nail him down. And so he's in this discussion and and he tells some parables to them to respond to some of the things they're firing at him. And so let me just read it in the context. It says, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. So he is um, like in the kingdom of heaven, maybe compared in the opening verse of the chapter to a king who gave a wedding feast. And he sent out his slaves to call those who'd been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Underscore that in your mind. They were unwilling, not unable, but unwilling. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who had been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock. All are 
are, are all butchered and everything is ready to come to the wedding feast. They paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his, a business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with the dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. So Jesus is telling this parable on the Jewish religious leaders there in Israel who, remember, he came to his own and his own received him not. It doesn't mean that every Pharisee or every Sadducee ended up being lost. In the book of Acts, we have priests who are coming to faith. Look, when you got the religious hoi polloi coming to faith, you know something big is happening. Nicodemus, who was the teacher, not just a teacher, but the teacher of Israel, the teacher of teachers, he ends up coming to faith. So they're not all excluded. But as a general principle, he came to his own, his own received him not. And so he's telling this parable on these who are examining him all week long, and all they can do is find fault, and they're unwilling to come. And so in the immediate context, he comes into the feast, the king, and there's a fella in there who's not dressed in wedding clothes. He said, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, bind him here in, in hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So that's the context of what he is doing. And the statement that he is making here really touches on the choices that people make. And so some were unwilling and some just didn't care. Uh, that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, God saying, you can go to heaven and you can go to hell. He's calling them all, but they were unwilling. And the same truth is brought out in John chapter 12, where Jesus is performing miracle after miracle after miracle. And Jesus um, exhorts them in the 12th chapter, having seen all these miracles, uh, but without any response to make a decision. And he says, um, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And these things, the Bible says, Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. From whom? From the Jews that he's referring to. And uh, and then it says um, they were not yet believing in him. And the parallel here is because they would not believe They could not believe in him. And that's really what you're seeing here. There's a man who comes in in his own righteousness rather than in the righteousness needed to come into the kingdom of God, and he's excluded. Uh, Not because he was unable to be a part of God's calling, but he was unwilling. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.